we so often see not only this idea that like mothers solve the problem of parenthood in America all by themselves as individuals or they suck their failures, right? But also that we need to teach our children the language of consent and autonomy. And I am all for that 100%. But that too places this really heavy burden on mothers. Like Jacqueline Rose, she writes about like the mother is like the scapegoat, but like also she's expected to solve everything. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. For most women, writes Amanda Monti, the loss of the body to the world of gender is slow. The grieving process denied. We fall apart, are told and sold methods for cobbling ourselves back together. We break again. We wake up one day to find our body is a patchwork, a lumpy foreign object to which we are evidently forever attached. The world has done its work, made us into something called woman. We are not always sure we like what we have become. Amanda Monti writes about what it's like to grow up gendered as a woman with the expectations of motherhood, child rearing, marriage at the forefront of what people think you will do with your life. In her book, Touched Out, Motherhood, Misogyny, Consent and Control, she writes about the process of losing your body to others and the bewildering process of trying to understand why your body wasn't yours in the first place. Was it when people first started commenting on your body as a young child? Was it when they gave you dolls or they told you what you would do with your life? Or was it when you were expected to be pregnant or when you lost a job opportunity because people thought you would drop out? When exactly do you realize that your body is subject to so many other people's expectations and it might not fully be yours? Amanda Monti raises these questions and more in her essays and writing about motherhood. For her, feeling overwhelmed and completely touched out by her young children was a sign of so much more a sign of boundaries being crossed, of violations from the past, and of expectations crawling all over her in a world designed for men. Take a listen. One of the hardest things about being a CEO or being a manager or a leader is finding and carving out space to think. That is one of the reasons why I made the Wise Women's Council. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Our core business trainings help CEOs and leaders make complex decisions more easily, learn how to say no, learn how to ask for help, and build a life and a business based on whole person leadership principles. Our leadership sessions support you in deepening your own internal wisdom, building at your personal growth edges, and improving your stamina and energy reserves. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now, and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. Amanda, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do? Because I know that you are a lecturer and a teacher and you have that realm. Can you give us some context on what you do for a living? I am a lecturer right now at Cal State East Bay. I've been teaching at the college level for like over a decade, but I've also been teaching in community arts programs. Since the pandemic, I've been teaching at a bunch of different amazing creative writing organizations. I mean, I teach writing and lit, but I also run a newsletter, which is something that I kind of started during the pandemic when teaching was complicated, we'll say, like just to be a woman of small words on that topic. And I write. Um, I'm a freelance writer and an author and a parent. And a parent. Lots of free time. (laughs) So much free time. And everything you listed, they're such high paying jobs, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) Well recognized by society as important, productive work. (laughs) Totally compensated for the work that you do. I can tell through reading your book the depth of knowledge you have about feminism and culture and all that it entails because the words you use are so woven together. And every time I'm like, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) I want to start our conversation today with the idea of the body. You write about the body in your book and you connect so many pieces for me about like what it means to be a woman and a mother and to grow up gendered as a girl. And one of the things I'm grasping for in understanding, I'm going to turn 40 this year, and I still don't know the edges of my own body. Like I still yeah. can struggle with the permission aspect, the desire aspect, the pleasure, like what's mine? Where does it start? Who am I in service to? And this is so central to part of your book. For people who grow up as girls and women, there's just this web, this invisible matrix of rules about your body that we can slowly start to, I don't know, like get to a place where it's like, is this even mine? Like you're inhabiting this sack of meat, (laughs) sack of meat, like (laughs) Mm -hmm. almost to serve at the pleasure of someone else. So I want to start our conversation by exploring some of the rules and expectations placed on women's bodies, because that's what you unpack so much in your book. Can you tell me a little bit about like, what are some of the rules and expectations placed on women's bodies? There's so many, right? And there's so many contradictory rules and expectations. Thank you for sharing like sort of your own connection to your body, because I think that so many, like you said, people who grow up as girls and women struggle with these questions. You should be a sexual object, but you shouldn't be too sexy and you shouldn't like have enjoy too much pleasure, especially if it's like with yourself or with other women or with children or anyone other than like a white cis man. You should be a doting mother, but you shouldn't be too much of a doting mother, right? Because then it's like pathological and you're going to mess up your children in like a weird, creepy way that's in like all of the murder mysteries that we watched with like overbearing mothers. You should be thin, of course. Maybe that's an easy one, right? But also like not too thin, right? And you shouldn't be like too worried about your appearance. But (laughs) so I feel like I'm kind of like doing like the Barbie monologue right now. I don't know if you've seen it, right? But it's like this, be this, not that, which, you know, yeah, is whatever. We could talk on and on about that. But there are so many rules. And, you know, you mentioned like pleasure and desire, And I think kind of an unspoken rule is that your desire 
your sexual pleasure, your sexual life should always be in service of men, of reproduction. But again, like not too much, right? Because it's really just a service. You shouldn't really be taking any pleasure there yourself. Well, I think what's so fascinating about this, and even as I struggle to like articulate the question, is that I suppose I'm like searching for like a clear map. Like here's the 10 point bullet point framework of how you're gendered as a woman. And these are the 10 beliefs. And here's how you overcome them, right? Like I'm looking for (laughs) simplicity. And yet the problem is that it's confusing. And I am still confused and I'm still unsure and I'm still uncertain. And there's something you write in your book that I think is so important, which is this concept of like, what if I don't know what I want? What if I don't know how I feel? What if I don't know? And that kind of uncertain space, that is not allowed. Like women are supposed to know what they want. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a really important sort of contradictory expectation or rule, right? That comes up when we talk about consent, which is that, yeah, women are supposed to sort of unfailingly know what they want, say no at the right time. But the reality is that like many women and girls find themselves like sort of playing out these social scripts. And then there's fear of, well, if I say no, there could be more violence or retribution, right? That's really complicated. But then just the, you know, on a basic human level, even if we weren't taught from a very young age to not trust our own voices, and if we were not taught to shape our desire and our bodies and our sense of pleasure around men and the male gaze, it's just confusing sometimes to know what we want. And so that's not allowed. And that places this really undue burden on girls and women to sort of stop or prevent sexual violence by just unfailingly always knowing what they want. And Catherine Angel, who I cite in the book, she writes really interestingly and beautifully about this. I think about the moment that let's say you're getting intimate with somebody for the first time and you're in that navigating that space of trying to figure out like where are we going and what are we doing Mm -hmm. and consent which is a new phenomenon this idea of permission consent and you're like oh I should say yes I should want this this is what I've been cultured to want there isn't really a space for people to say oh I don't know Or I've changed my mind. Or I've changed my mind, right. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine Angel also writes about this really beautifully. Once a woman has expressed some form of desire, she sort of removed herself from protection for whatever happens later. Maybe you do want to flirt with somebody at the bar, but that doesn't mean that you want them to violate you later. And To us, that kind of makes sense, right? But there is just this kind of cultural belief that once a woman's desire is like turned on, that she can't really change her mind. And it's not about her anymore. Permission is like the front door to your house and then you're allowed to go in the entire house. And it's like, no, actually, no, no, no. Right. (laughs) You're not allowed in my back bedroom or whatever the right metaphor would be. (laughs) Right, right, right. So you write about this so beautifully. Tell me a little bit about the ways in which you learned about your own body growing up. How did you experience intimacy with other people? What did you learn in terms of dulling or numbing or performance or pleasure? I mean, it's complicated. I think that part of the learning 
that we do around bodies just kind of comes from finding a language to talk about these things, to talk about consent, pleasure, desire, the fact that we even have a body. (laughs) And so when I was young, like when I was a teenager, like I don't think I had this idea that like, oh, my body isn't for me or that it is for me. I was just, which is kind of what I tell my children now, we have all these new ways of talking to our kids about these things. I was just kind of absorbing, you know, this was the 90s, 2000s, all these sort of cultural messages from film and from TV and from like women's magazines. And I saw all these women sort of performing the male gaze. This was a time when like sex positivity was sort of becoming a thing. I was raised in Los Angeles by a mother who was kind of always thwarting expectations of like what a mom should be. So I think I had kind of a sense of rebellion and sort of like sexual liberation, air quotes, that she sort of passed down to me in that era. But I also kind of understood that like there was this acquiescence to a sort of undercurrent of misogyny which was men took advantage of women, like some of these conversations with my mom when I was young, learning about women in my family who for generations had private secret abortions, gave themselves abortions at home. So this was all just like very matter of fact that this was just kind of the way that the world was. I say all this not to like fault my mom, (laughs) which we love to do, right? Blame everything on parents, but she didn't have the language to teach me about like autonomy, consent. I mean, I think post me too, we're just finding that. And this book is so much about parenting after me too, and starting to find that language while being a new parent and just sort of like realizing all this stuff. And then how can I bring this into parenting? Obviously, like also later becoming a feminist and being really immersed in feminist discourse. Like I learned some of this language, but it's been a process to understand (laughs) the sack of meat as we were discussing. Yeah. To even understand. And I'm curious what it's like to be a teenager today in the, you know, 2020s, because I also grew up as a teenager in the 1990s. And you go back and you watch some of the films or some of the movies, mm-hmm. or even like, I still have some of my journals from back then. And you read mm-hmm. what it was that you were thinking and feeling and how confusing it was. But also, we did not have language around consent. It was yeah. like, yeah. boys will be boys and boys have a lot of desire and like they have sexual urges and yeah. don't have sex until you're married. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be a slut, right? Exactly. And if I can just add, you know, it's funny that like my sort of natural inclination is to be like, oh, here's the conversations I had with my mom. But actually so much of what I learned about my body and my sexuality was in early sexual experiences with boys who were watching porn in the afternoons, like at home and who taught me literally how to give a blowjob and to push through discomfort. And so I think we don't talk enough about how that learning happens. Like you're saying, when you're a teenager, out in the world experiencing these things. Yeah. Say more about that. Like, what does it mean to learn in that you're 14, 17, 19, 21, whatever it is, and you're like in the realm of the super messy, sweaty, awkward encounter with another person, and you've got like this cloud of expectation over you. Can you say more? Like, what are you learning as a teenager about sex through this process? Oh my gosh, so much. Just learning that like my pleasure wasn't really 
a major factor that I was kind of a tool, a tool for boys to use to achieve their own pleasure. It was sort of that beginning of sort of erasing myself. And you asked earlier about like kind of deadening. And for me, it was the beginning of drinking so that I would be less nerdy, less bookish, less awkward, more of this sort of fluid, flowy, sexual creature. And then getting older, like realizing kind of back to what we were saying about expectations of bodies. Okay, I did all this. I drank to make myself into this sexual object, this like giver of male pleasure. But now I somehow turned myself into like what a woman is not supposed to be (laughs) by trying to follow that first expectation. That's a lot of, I think, what people who are racist girls are learning, right? Is these very contradictory expectations. But also just that there's this very like one-sided way of thinking about desire. One of the reasons I think this is so complicated is because there's also just a big void. There's a big gaping void of things that we're not told or taught or encouraged to explore. And that is things like, what do you want? What does feel good to you? Right. Like, what do you want to do? What do I feel? And like all of those questions get shoved so far away because they're never even brought up. It's like, hey, you're 14. What feels good to you? Like if I had to answer that honestly when I was 14, I'd be like, the bathtub, the bathtub faucet, right? Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I'd be like, I have that. Yes. (laughs) Right. And yet slowly we get, (laughs) you're laughing. but (laughs) But everyone has their thing. For me, it was like the pole of the bunk bed that I would like Oh, yeah. Have my way with like, yeah, that felt good. But then you realize, oh, but suppose like, I guess this is not what like sexuality is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this really like other weird, confusing, uncomfortable thing. Okay, I guess I'll try that with these guys. And I'll say there's this socialization into heteronormativity, too. Like I definitely desired girls when I was young and then I absorbed the message that like something was wrong there. So there's a lot of that sort of ushering into this cis hetero way of thinking about pleasure. Totally. And the penetration aspect of thinking about pleasure, which often for people with vulva and labia and vaginas, like can feel like just painful at the outset, right? It's like, this doesn't feel good. And then what ends up happening inadvertently is, oh, I suppose what I want is for sex not to hurt. Well, for penetrative penile sex not to hurt. And so then it's about the avoidance of pain, which Mm -hmm. is not pleasure. Right, right. Like that's the best that we can ask for. Is not to be in pain. Right. Or like feeling like you're going to throw up because you're, you know, you can fill in the blanks there, but. (laughs) Totally. I appreciate too what you said about the heteronormativity and like, oh, you had a desire or interest or attraction towards girls. I also have Mm -hmm. memories of those at various pieces of my life. What does that mean today? Like, how has that translated into your life now? Well, I think writing with this book was a process of sort of reckoning with a lot of that. I'm a married woman, but I identify with all these parts of myself. I should say, yeah, married to a a man. I think it's complicated to say like one way that any of that has kind of come to shape like my current sexual life. 
But I think in this book, what I wanted to do was show what it's like to kind of suddenly wake up to all of this and kind of walk with a reader hand in hand through that work of processing all of that. I could go on and on about this, or I could say more later, but I really didn't want it to be sort of like, here's me on this other side. I am this aspirational sort of sex positive. I have it all figured out. Or here are the steps for you to do that. Like that's not the project here. It's also just like not the kind of writer that I am. I mean, I'm still like very much figuring it out. You know, I'm like two ish years sober. Like, so that's also been a complete new way to think about pleasure, desire, awakening. And I think it's important to like lean into that rather than to be like, here is how I have, like you said, gone through the 10 steps of like living as a woman under patriarchy and I've got it. (laughs) Here's my book. It's four pages long. Number one, dealing with misogyny. Number two, dealing with the patriarchy. I mean, that would be great. Like if we had that guidebook, like if someone should write it, if they know how to. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I think about what this points to, and I think what's so important to talk about is like this journey is a confusing, complicated, I always feel very muddy. Right. It's like every day I'm like peeling back more layers and I get the contrast effect when I look back at something I've said or done. I've been like, oh, I wouldn't say that again. I don't think that anymore. And that's such an important thing because unlearning patriarchy and unlearning misogyny Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. even just seeing it for the first time. Yeah. is so gradual in my experience. I want to connect the idea of the body. You were talking about being a teenager and your earlier sexual experience. And then these are my words, kind of learning the deadening or the dulling or the erasure of self, the erasure of inner desire. I think that's such an important thing to talk about because then when people become mothers, we're sold this idea that becoming a mother is idyllic, it is perfection. It is the epitome of our desires. Our instincts will fall out of our vagina, right? <laughs> so Mr. Baby. Like, just be there. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Did you know it comes after the placenta, right? It's like baby uh, Yeah, placenta. that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Handbook. Mm-hmm. And yet a reality is often that it actually... What am I trying to say? Like unlocks a lot of the trauma. It doesn't. Like reveals. It doesn't. Right. Yeah. But also, but more than that, awakening is the wrong word. It can be really traumatic. It can be really confronting. Yes. Confronting like, is a great word for it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. It's confronting yeah. because you're like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. I actually, X, Y, and Z, have a lot of really horrible because I've been raped. Yeah. Right. Or all of this stuff comes pouring yeah. out. And so for a lot of people, there's, most part of rage and there's anger and mm-hmm. there's confusion mm-hmm. because motherhood is so vastly different. So you connect so much of this in your book and I want to turn it over to you because I want to hear you go on and on about this. What is this bringing up for you? Oh yeah. I mean, so much, like you said, like these are a lot of the things that I explore in the book. Like I start by thinking about a childbirth and my own sort of like attempt to control it or understand it which was also like an effort to control or understand my body, but also like the narrative of motherhood and make it something different than what I knew culturally the institution is. I'm trained like in feminist theory, in narrative. 
so I understood all these things, but like walking through it is totally different than understanding it intellectually. But I'll say for me, like this book, when I was working on it, I noticed that a lot of people felt like the subjects of like sexual politics and desire and assault and harassment and all of that was a very different issue than the question of like parenthood or motherhood, which is wild, right? Because most of these experiences happen over the course of a person's life. Many people go through all of these experiences sort of more or less back to back. I was curious, like, who or what is being served by keeping these separate? Like, why does it feel so dangerous to talk about sexuality and motherhood when we know that the very concept of motherhood is inextricable from the way that we think about sexuality and relationships and family? These things are all, like, totally connected. So I'll say that, that that was sort of an impetus of kind of bringing these two subjects together. Yeah, you, the book you wrote touched out, what are the four words after it? Misogyny. Motherhood, Motherhood misogyny. Consent. Consent and control. And control. That's right. Yeah. Motherhood, misogyny, consent and control. Yeah. Just such a fabulous subtitle, right? You're just like, boom, 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 boom. Okay. <laughs> but you connect motherhood and consent and culture together through the body. The idea that the common denominator all comes back to the control yeah. of women's yeah. bodies. Can you talk yeah. about this thesis? Can you explore that for us? There's a couple things going on here. The sort of continuity between rape culture and motherhood as an institution, like an Adrian Rich famously said that the institution of motherhood, those expectations, those cultural ideas, those narratives are very different from our experience or the possibility of what motherhood or parenthood or loving a child or caregiving could be, or even is for some people. But the continuity between that institution and rape culture is something that I'm exploring quite a bit in the book. And there's a lot of ways in which there are kind of parallels there, or both of these kind of institutions just operate on a similar logic. So that's a lot of what I'm kind of digging into in the book. We're going to take a quick break. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. All right, let's get back into it. So what is rape culture? Yeah. For someone who's like, I maybe heard that word once or twice, but I don't know what it is. Broadly speaking, rape culture, central to kind of the idea of rape culture is this idea that women's suffering is inevitable. Women's violation and pain is sort of normal and natural. And that obviously rape specifically is inevitable right? It's not a thing that we can sort of socially, politically correct or overcome. But also central to the notion of rape culture is that it's women's fault. And so this comes back to some of the things that we were discussing earlier, this idea that, well, you didn't know what you want. You didn't know what you wanted. So therefore, 
that's on you, right? Or you made this choice to go to this place or to know this person and therefore it's your fault. So there's so many ways in which rape culture is like reinforced culturally, politically. But when we look at the institution of motherhood, we also see a very similar logic operating there. So this idea that losing one's bodily autonomy is sort of part of parenthood. There's this degree of acceptance around the ways that mothers will suffer, these really extreme ways. And again, this is sort of the central thesis of rape culture. So some of the things that I explore in the book are like how this is laced throughout modern psychology, specifically like Freudian thought. I write about this Freudian Helena Deutsch, who she argued, right, that sex for women was sort of inextricable from pain, that women are predisposed to feel pain in sex, and that they even take a little pleasure of it in it, and that they even kind of like rape a little bit, because this could all be traced in her mind to the pain that women feel in childbirth. So there's this way in which the suffering of motherhood or pregnancy, right, and childbirth is used to sort of excuse other ways in which violation happens, but also vice versa. And Susan Brown Miller, who wrote like the famous book about rape as a form of control, she writes about the real influence of these Freudian thinkers. You know, it might seem like very, okay, this is like very intellectual, but really this kind of had a trickle down effect culturally and is with us in so many ways still. So many ways. And so what you're doing in this book is like drawing the line between or the ways or whatever the connection, nature between living in a world of rape culture into parenthood and being like, we're actually parenting in the age of rape culture, which means the way we're taught to parent, the way we're taught to mother, Mm -hmm. the expectations we have about our bodies in motherhood, the expectations we have about what our children have access to, the fact that they were supposed to just completely give ourselves over to our children, to our husbands, if we're in heteronormative relationships, the fact that we're supposed to kind of disappear, wither away, not have pleasure, like that also is rape culture. We're parenting in the age of rape culture. It's shocking to read about, right? It's really upsetting and frustrating. It's also Mm -hmm. like eye-opening and enlightening. And I want to keep going back and forth and drawing these connections with you. So come back to rape culture because I think seeing it is really hard to do when you're living in it. It's the whole like fish and water. You're like, what's water? This is just the world. What are some everyday examples Mm -hmm. of rape culture? There's so many, right? Like the go-to example is just the dismissal of rape as a joke. Right around the time that I became a mother, there were these big, I read about this in the book, these big like campus sexual assault cases. And that was a time when sort of like the rape joke was really under scrutiny. If you look at the way that we culturally represent motherhood, the suffering mom is a joke. Also very much like a key part of our culture. Something else that I write about in the book too, is just this really high burden that's placed on women's speech and actions to prevent their own assault. And I think that it's important to think of this in the context of motherhood, because we so often see not only this idea that like mothers solve the problem of parenthood in America all by themselves, 
as individuals or they suck, their failures, right? But also that we need to teach our children the language of consent and autonomy. And I am all for that 100%. But that too places this really heavy burden on mothers. Like Jacqueline Rose, she writes about like the mother is like the scapegoat, but like also she's expected to solve everything. And the absence, again, the absence that's so loud. And the fact that everything is placed at the foot of a woman. Yeah. And and what's even missing from these examples is what does it look like for a man to say, I just want to focus on your pleasure? What does Mm -hmm. it mean for you to have pleasure and feel pleasure? What would that look like? Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's really popular in everyday conversation yeah i find i personally struggle sometimes with terms like rape culture and misogyny and patriarchy because there's still another layer outside of every day and i need to get into the brain or i need to be able to say like but like what is it you know like what is it yeah and i think there are these like big hefty terms that can feel very abstract and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think like most women, most people who are not like white cis male folks, they understand that there are these forces at play (laughs) throughout their lives and that there's a continuity there. And we can say like, it's because we live in a culture of misogyny. It's the patriarchy. Yes, (laughs) true. But also I wanted to give that like granular, real, personal flesh, (laughs) fleshy detail to what that looks like and what that feels like. And just give us some more language that we can use to talk about how these institutions are connected, how girlhood grooms us for motherhood. Yes, we know, like someone gave me a doll when I was a baby, right? My mom, like she also seemed like disempowered. So I thought that's how it was going to be. But there's much more there. There's much more that happens sort of as a result of these systems of power. So I hope that, yeah, the book like gets us a little bit outside of these like big clunky abstract terms. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And for people listening, like it's hard sometimes to put language to something that's hard to see and slippery and down. And for me, one of the clear examples that you gave in your book is, you know, screaming across the title, right? The title, Touched Out. Yeah. Yeah, you know, is the idea that like sometimes it's really freaking annoying for a tiny baby to have unfettered access to your body. And you're just like, get off of me. I don't want to be touched. I don't want like and that's your body saying I'm done here. I need some personal space. And you connect that back to rape culture because the idea for a woman to say no and to say like, I don't want to. I don't like that. No is a full sentence. Mm -hmm. I need a break is unfortunately counterculture and so often it's seen as being an (laughs) affront to somebody else or as a cause of somebody else's pain it's like hey i don't want to hold the baby right now and it's like oh my god you're responsible for like destroying this baby's psychological health because you wouldn't give unlimited access it's like no i put the baby down the baby's crying the baby's communicating i need a break baby's gonna be fine right you're having (laughs) a human interaction here yes (laughs) totally all the baby is communicating to me it's displeasure and you know what someone else can deal with the baby 
Like, when did that become so counterculture? So that's actually the line between rape culture and parenthood, which is in a conversation with one of the masculine persuasion, a lot of times women will say something <laughs> like, no, nah, I don't want to, or no, nah, it doesn't feel right. And you'll be cajoled. Yeah. And you'll be told that what you think is not what you think. It's like, are you sure? Like, but actually you do really want, come on, just a little bit. You want to do yes. this. Like, yes. Yeah. And that talking over a woman and telling a woman that what they think or feel is not actually what they think or feel, or yeah, that it's unacceptable yeah. to say no, is to me the epitome of rapey culture. <laughs> yeah. And the suppression of voice, not just the suppression of desire, but of voice and identity. And like, we see this so much in motherhood culture, like literally, like I've never felt, well, maybe when I was a girl, but becoming a mother, it just felt like there was all these voices that I was supposed to be speaking and none of them were my own. They were, yeah, that voice that would say yes, but also I had to like comport my body a certain way. And like, I had to smile, you know, even like knowing about all these issues, like it was just this very intense cultural pressure to shape myself and sound a certain way. I was like just talking to my, this is like TMI, but just talking to my therapist about this. I was like at the park the other day for soccer and noticed myself saying bye to a parent in like this ridiculous voice. <laughs> like, who is that? You know? Yeah. Like the mom voice, like I'm not frustrated. I'm not trying to rush these kids home and like go to bed. And that's like a funny example, but there's all these ways in which we feel constantly that like our voice is devalued. It's like rapping or something like that. It's like, I'm not (laughs) mad. I'm not mad. I can carry the world on my back. It's like a mom jingle. That's what you're supposed to be singing all the time. I guess. Yeah. rape culture, the suppression of voice, desire, the suppression mm-hmm. of self. So the connection then is like, well, if you have hundreds of thousands of voices in your head that are other people's voices, the societal voices, it's the thousands of conflicting messages on Instagram. It's the confusion about like what role you're supposed to play. Is it any wonder you can't find your own voice? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So confusing. Oof. Woof. The other thing I want to talk to you about, I mean, there's like a hundred things I want to talk to you about, but the other thing I want to bring up here is this idea that (laughs) therefore it's always the mom's fault, right? Like, and therefore, and like our obsession, and you talk about the Freudian thinking that shows this, but just this idea that, you know what, whatever you do, you're messing your kid up and we're going to blame you. And like, we have gotten so extreme in this that it's like, basically like anything that's wrong in society, we can always trace back to the mom. It's always your mom's fault. And I'm like, that is a whole lot of uh, responsibility you've given me, but also like causality you've given me. Like you really are trusting me to be (laughs) like, like you're sure that I could produce a perfect person if only I behave appropriately according to your rules. Like I'm not so sure about that as a thesis. Right. Well, and just like you're sure that I could live this life of utter pleasure and lack of violation if I just do these things, if I just perform all these things just the right way. Right. But it's an impossible task. And it's like all these moving goalposts all the time. The mother blame thing, part of this comes back to our obsession with like attachment parenting and attachment culture, which comes from some of this kind of like Freudian thinking, but really comes from this really sort of 
shaky science around attachment, you know, which essentially says that like it is the mother, usually the assumed primary caregiver who in the first couple years of life basically decides the fate of their child. And there's been all this weird conservative rhetoric around it lately, around like the first four years of life, core memories, but also like peak experience. And if you go back to work or do anything else (laughs) other than create peak experience, core memories for your kids, they're going to be ruined. But this is just all rhetoric. This is all just rhetoric in service of keeping women in the home. But attachment theory in terms of like pop psychology, it sort of crosses party lines, right? Like people very much don't question it, but it forgets that there is an entire society. It forgets that hopefully we are living outside of just the home with the mom for not just the first four years of life, but for all of our lives, right? It forgets things like race, class, gender, all of these things shape who we become. So you did an amazing job, I think, of like unpacking this attachment, parenting, call it dogma, but you said shaking hands. Can you dig into that a little bit? Like, do you remember all that you wrote about it? Because it kind of blew my mind. You're like, oh, wait a second. This is actually a 1950s made up paper. Yeah. Well, I talk a little bit about like Bowlby, who's like considered like the father of attachment science and had this like crazy list of all the things that can ruin a child from like famine to a full-time working mom. Like these are all like on the same list. Also the death of a parent, I think is also on there and divorce. Those are the same thing. But I think I spend most of the time in the book here talking about attachment parenting, like Bill and Martha Sears, sort of iteration of it because that was really big when I became a parent and maybe you can relate to this like yes in the late 2010s I always was like okay this is cool like I can kind of get behind this I'm important my kid really needs me I love this this feels like powerful (laughs) and then you know I was like talking with another mother who was oh yeah you know this is like attachment parenting there's a lot of issues with it in the way that it just sort of assumes not just the mother as a primary caregiver, but that there is a primary caregiver, one singular. And that presumption of the nuclear family. And even though I was an intellectual and had like studied this stuff, like it hadn't really occurred to me. And so that was kind of like a wake up call for me, but I still was very much under the spell of attachment parenting as a new mom. Like I wore my baby and I breastfed. I really enjoyed breastfeeding, but I breastfed my baby for a year, both of my kids. There's like so much I could say about attachment parenting. Again, I think it's really useful. I think people want a paradigm. We want a way through which we can understand the world. And so attachment theory is kind of attractive in that way. Yeah. But it's like a personality test. Sure. You can say, oh, you know, your parent was like unavailable. So you became like anxious or avoidant or whatever it would be. But that doesn't really tell us anything new. And it also doesn't really tell us anything about how the larger culture creates identity. 
there's so much room for us to resist and unpack attachment theory as this sort of assumed monolithic way of explaining how kids relate to parents and parents relate to kids. Yes. To go so far as like a kid's going to want a secure attachment to a caregiver. Sure. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. makes sense. You're probably like kids going to want to know that they belong somewhere or that there's someone there looking out for them. Sure. But one of the things I think you articulate so well too is like, let's take a broad sample of people. Hey, looks like 30% of them are chill. Like <laughs> 30% of them are anxious and 30% right. of them are something else. <laughs> and now we're going to construct a theory about the fact that those 30% of anxious ones, and must be because of the mom. It's like, mm-hmm. just blame it on yeah. the mom. Yes. And that's kind of what's happening here is like, we had some men write some ideas in the mid-century mm-hmm. about how... Um, <laughs> about Much how of modern like, psychology. Some men wrote some ideas mid-century. <laughs> We're still totally. trying to like make them work. <laughs> totally. And it's like, well, there are some other things that could have possibly done that. And also like, where's the research to back this up? And then it goes so far down into the cascade of you have to wear your child at all times and you have to respond to them at all times and you should never sleep and you should support yourself and everything should change. And like you should just basically be miserable and disintegrate as a human being in order for your child to be securely attached. And that's going to be good for your kid. And that's going to be good for your kid. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, actually, like having a stable mother might be good for your kid, too. You know, yeah. Or like good for that parent. And so it's the child-centered nature of the philosophy too, which is like, yes, my kids run the show around my house. I'm not saying that I've overcome these things, right? But the way in which like every way that we try to understand parenting is always like so child-centered. And this too just comes back to that idea that that's because we don't really care about or value women's bodies. And because underlying there is this idea that this is what women's bodies are for, right? is that erasure that comes with parenthood. This is what it's all been leading up to. This is your self-actualization, disappearance. (laughs) Why are you so unhappy? You chose this, right? (laughs) You asked for it. (laughs) You chose this. Yeah, so easy to choose something like this. I know there's like a whole conversation about choice we can have. I'm going to turn to, just for timing, I'm going to turn to like more of a rapid fire Q&A as we like come to a close. So the first part, like choice. If you had to rant about choice, what would you say? Oh, I feel like I've been ranting about choice a lot. Choice, people get really uncomfortable when we talk about choice. People think choice is something that we have or we don't have. Agency is something that we have or we don't have. And that I think is the problem because in reality, free will, choice, agency has always been limited along the lines of gender, class, race, sexuality, sexual orientation. What we're really talking about is the degree to which someone has full citizenship. So I don't think it's useful to be like, wait, are you saying that we don't ever have choices? No, I'm saying that if we want to think about choice intersectionally, like we have to understand that in different spaces, in different bodies, we have different degrees of control an agency. And I think we really need to like talk about this so much more. Mm, I think so too. You're so right. It's like a classic American example that 
can shed light on it is the idea of daycare deserts. It's like, oh, I'm not yeah, going to choose yeah. to have my kid go to daycare. I'm going to choose to have a nanny. And it's like, well, yeah. a nanny can cost three to $5,000 a month. So only people with lots of money can quote unquote choose that. And right. then daycare is, they don't exist. How can you choose it? Right? Yeah. The, yeah. The bigger context choice. Okay. So another rapid fire. Well, what are the top three themes? Two, three, four, three is a loose number that you want people to get from reading this book? I think that what I want this book to do is I want women who maybe have carried shame about sexual experiences, about ways that they've been violated or raped or experienced attempted rape or a number of like different subjects that I explore in the book, ways that they've held themselves responsible. I don't want to say that I want to release them of that because that's just like a huge task, but I want there to be a narrative that they can hang on to there. Same in terms of parenting, that feeling of like, why can't I get this right? Or why can't I figure this out? Or like, I thought I was going to be able to do this better. (laughs) I want readers to have something to hang on to there. I want people to think about what men expect of women in partnerships. I want more men to be in childcare this is like my drum that I'm beating right now, not just in homes, but in early childhood settings where over 90% of caregivers are women. And, you know, I think this book is so much about like, just how do we make sense and find some understanding of desire and pleasure while the world is not fixed. And so again, I want this to be a narrative for folks to hang on to, a text that generates questions, you know, about all these things that we've talked about and hopefully like revelations. But as like an author, I'm like always really resistant to, to be like, this is what I want this to do because reading experiences are so diverse, but those are some things. The first one is so important. Like women who have carried shame about sexual experiences are taking on too much responsibility about like, if I had just done things differently. Yeah. People listening, like Amanda goes into a lot of detail about your own experiences, like really specific um, in a way that's connective. I can remember moments like yours, myself and in others. I remember seeing someone else live through something like this and just having the words to wrap around it can be very powerful. Yeah. 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 And the words that we have for the ways in which women's people's bodies get violated are very limited. You know, we have like rape, assault, harassment. And I think I came up against that a lot in writing this book. And I tried to kind of just dwell there rather than here's my new lexicon. (laughs) I hope that that is a conversation that we can have more, you know, we culturally speaking. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Thank you. I want to tell you a couple of things that people have said about the Wise Women's Council. One of our members said that business support is top notch. On one of our calls, one person said, my mind is already blown and we're only seven minutes in. Hillary said, Sarah, you are one of the best facilitators I have ever met. And Dana said, if you're somebody that regularly designs community or holds space for other people, here's a place where you don't have to because Sarah has figured it all out for you and you can just be when you're in this space. Caroline said once on a call, she said, 
I'm normally one of those people that's thinking all the time about how you can facilitate something better. And Caroline said, I don't have to do that when I'm with you. Michelle said it's one of the only places she doesn't have to code switch between so many different identities. She doesn't have to hide being a mom. She doesn't have to hide being a business owner. She doesn't have to explain herself over and over again to different people and have them not understand her. If you are living at the intersection of parent, mom, business owner, leader, entrepreneur, facilitator, or you are running a company, come check out the Wise Women's Council. That's a place I made for you. It's what I needed when I first became a parent, and we've been running this program for six years. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council and apply to join us today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And thank you to our guests whose time, energy, and insight are so helpful. And thank you for being a listener. You can find out more about our guests in our show notes and on our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.